Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Right now, the nation is screaming the murder of George Floyd, yet another unarmed black man in America at the hands of our government, has again shown the true colors of the two Americas, the racist authoritarian regime intent in propping up white supremacy and its supporters and those of us who will fight against it with all that we have. I want you to know that we'll be focusing in on black voices next week as our nation observes Juneteenth. But for this week's episode, we're going to dig into a another execution of white nationalist and white supremacist policy that is killing people right here in America during the COVID pandemic. ICE and CBP continue to detain immigrants in facilities without adequate medical care, sanitation supplies, or even the ability to maintain a safe social distance. At the same time, our weak, failed president is using the pandemic as an excuse to end all legal immigration to our country increase family separations, and even deport sick immigrants after diagnosis. Our guests today are on the right side of that fight, working to make life better for immigrant communities. Jen Budd is a former supervising agent in CBP and has exposed racist nationalist policies in the agency. And Andrea Guerrero is executive director of Alliance San Diego, a community-based organization supporting the immigrant community in that city. They are on the ground fighting the fight every day. Please listen. New data suggests a growing outbreak of coronavirus infections among immigrants in U.S. custody. Immigration and Customs Enforcement announced the first death of an immigrant in U.S. custody due to COVID-19. While millions of Americans continue to shelter at home, immigrants within uh, detention centers are facing a very different reality. Immigrant advocates worry about job losses in Arizona and the impact it will have in the undocumented community. It's impossible to maintain social distance while in detention, and that sick detainees in his pod are being told to gargle salt water, aren't being tested for COVID-19, and are sent back to be with the rest of the pod. A civil rights group is suing for the release of medically vulnerable immigrants locked up in jails all across the state. They say they're at high risk for COVID-19 and don't deserve a death sentence. I don't want to die in here. Hi, I'm Jen Budd, and I know that with the advent of COVID-19, ICE detention facilities have become literal death camps. Sorry, not sorry. Jen, thank you so much for joining the show again. I know this has got to be super hard for you because, you know, obviously you are an activist who is used to being on the front lines and showing up places. And now you're having to do all this work from home. So tell me where we are exactly. I feel like so many issues have taken a back seat to COVID-19, but all of this intersects. So I want to talk about the intersection between COVID-19 and the immigration crisis and where we are today. So I think my first question is, when you were a CBP officer, 
Did you deal with any disease outbreaks in detention centers? No, and that's because I was an agent before CBP came along. So the detention policies for migrants when I was an agent under the old system before 9-11, we did not keep people in detention for violating 1325, which is not crossing at a designated port of entry. Right. Basically criminalizing people coming over the border without entering a point of entry. So was that Clinton that implemented 1325? It was actually George W. And I think last time we talked, I think I said it was 2003, but I think you were correct that the law had changed from more of an administrative violation like jaywalking, that is what I enforced back in the day, to now a criminal charge that could land them like six months in jail or whatever. And that's been the biggest change. And that's what we've seen with the zero tolerance. And that's why we're seeing all these problems with the pandemic, where all this is intersecting right now. Right. I think it's important for people to know that these were laws that were in place that Trump weaponized for his own white nationalism, white supremacist agenda. Because of the pandemic, a federal judge ruled last month that immigrant children detained in U.S. custody should be released without unnecessary delay. Any humane response would be to release them with their parents. Denise Bell with Amnesty International says instead, the Trump administration is again trying to separate migrant families. The administration is once again weaponizing its response to the pandemic to achieve policies it couldn't achieve otherwise. So as far as you know, was there or is there any standard protocol in place for any type of disease outbreaks in detention centers? Well, they do have policies. I think a lot of the confusion, especially for people who aren't in this field, is ICE has a variety of different facilities. So just a little quick education is like ICE has facilities that are run by ICE management officers. Then they also contract out to private prison facilities for detention space for migrants. So they're contracting to geo group and core civic predominantly. And there's a few other smaller ones, but those are the big two. And then they also have under the INA 287 is where they can contract with, say, a local Orange County jail system or something. And that jail system, that sheriff in that area can take money from ICE and house migrants if they choose. So there's a variety of different ways that adult migrants are being held. But the policies that all of them are required to conform to, to follow, are from ICE. And so under the ICE policies, that's under 4.3, they're required to coordinate with the local county public health officials. They're required to make sure that they have access to a doctor daily, access to nurses daily, access to medicine. So there are policies, but they're vague. They are literally written just like that, like detainees are to have daily access to a doctor. Well, what does that mean in practice? What that means in practice is a doctor will show up for about an hour a day or he or she could be on call. So they'll show up for about an hour a day at this facility or at that facility. And the people being detained are required the night before to put their name on a list and hopefully they get called to see that doctor. And if not, they're out of luck. So there's just so much wiggle room. And that's what we saw with 
the OIG report that was done after we saw the complaints about how bad the facilities were, the various detention facilities that migrants were being kept in. So they are supposed to follow these policies, but we know from these reports of the OIG report that they have not been in the past. And so there's no reason to expect that they've made any changes because there's not been any follow-up from OIG on whether they fix these problems. Listen, when I visited the Kearns Detention Center, there is a father and a son. It was when it was a father-son detention center. They came in and we were speaking through an interpreter and I could just tell by the color of the little boy's skin, and this was months and months ago, uh-huh. that he was not well. And it reminded me of, I, I used to volunteer at the Mattel Center in the oncology hematology department. So I dealt with children that had blood disorders, mostly leukemia and cancers of the blood. And looking at this little boy reminded me so much of the same color I would see, you know, these kids who had cancer would be. And so I said to the father, I said, is your son okay? Is he healthy? And he said to me, no, he has cancer. And I said, uh, uh, what do you mean? Like, ha- has he been checked out? Has he been? And he said they they gave him a physical when he first came in. I told them that he had cancer and we never saw a doctor again. Mm-hmm. And because there was nothing that was contagious about him, they basically just left this child who came here for treatment to begin with. They left him in this detention center. Why? Because they didn't have the money to post bail. Right, right. The only reason why they were there is because they crossed the border to seek asylum. Is that the case? They crossed the border to get better care for his child because the dad's relatives lived in Milwaukee. So that was the other issue is they were in Texas, but they couldn't get to Milwaukee because they did not have money for bail and they did not have money for a plane ticket. So my husband and I actually put all of that up. And that's not my point in this story. My point in this story is if they are being negligent for people that have illness back then, before this was even a thing, I can't imagine the chaos that is ensuing right now, where it seemed like they didn't even have any protocol then. So can you talk our listeners through what you're hearing the conditions are like in detention centers right now? I mean, I would imagine these centers don't provide a lot of opportunities for social distancing. No, (laughs) no. And this is true for children's shelters too, which I'm sure we'll get to, but it's the same kind of concept in that Most of these facilities are like pods, so they can have so many people per pod. So maybe, let's say, 100. I'm thinking of the Otay Mesa detention facility that's run by CoreCivic down here in San Diego, and it's the one I know the best. So they have like maybe, let's just say they can have 100 people in a pod. And so they may have their own rooms, but they likely share their room with somebody And then they have to socialize with each other out in the main socialization area if they want to get out of their rooms. And then they have to still eat together. And, of course, they're using the same bathroom facilities and they're using the same shower facilities. So there's really no room for separation. Then plus you have that they're bringing in new people from outside all the time. 
And then you have the guards who are on the outside coming in who are not necessarily all the time wearing protection and gloves. And the reason why we know about this, because they're not going to share this information with us willingly, is simply because some of those who have been detained in Otay Mesa and a variety of other areas like in Miami and, and Texas have been able to get on the phone. And some of them are actually video chats that they've been able to do with their attorney. So they can say, I'm on a legal call and they have to let them have that call. And that's how we found out like in Otay Mesa a couple of weeks ago, maybe a week ago, it's so hard to keep track yeah. of time. I know. But yeah, with all this going on, the guards said, well, here, we're going to give you a mask because they realized that it was leaking out that there were a fair number of people there that were testing positive for COVID. They didn't really know how to quarantine at first. We had one CEO and she was working the quarantine dorm with no gloves and no mask. And she was going back and forth from the quarantine dorm back into our dorm and back into their dorm. What kind of supplies do you guys have? Do you have a consistent supply of soap? At this certain facility, they don't have hand soap. They give out um, like a little body soap that people use. It's not enough for them to be able to wash their hands and to be able to bathe with. So they said, here, we'll give you a mask, but you have to sign this paper. And it was in English. And so they had somebody translate it and they skipped over the paragraph that said, by signing this, you're waiving your rights to sue us if you do get COVID. And then somebody said, wait a minute, and grabbed the paper and translated it. And everybody was like, what? You know, and they rightly got upset. And they said, that's not right. You shouldn't do this. And when they got upset, the guards started handcuffing them and then proceeded to pepper spray them. Ugh. Are you kidding? All this is on an audio recording <gasps> of an attorney, you know, talking to his client. She's like, oh, they're pouring pepper spray on everybody. It's just crazy what they're doing. And then, you know, the mask is only for like, that's your only mask that you're going to get. And then the cleaning products that they get, because they tell those detainees that are in these pods, you're responsible for cleaning your own areas. And so they give them these chemicals, but they're really strong industrial chemicals. Well, we mm. have people in those facilities that have asthma we have people that are, you know... Sensitive. Yeah, yeah, they're sensitive or they're elders. There's a lot of people, like I was researching, they say that upwards of 64% of the people in these facilities are in there simply because they crossed the border and sought out asylum. So, you know, we're not talking about rapists and murderers and stuff. There's no reason for them to be in these facilities. Do we have any indication of how many people have been tested and how many may be positive? ICE is claiming that 425 detainees have been tested and 360 of those are positive. What? Wait, say those numbers again. 425 detainees have been tested and 360 <gasps> tested positive. But, and we're talking about ICE adult facilities. So we're talking about 
31,000 in those facilities. But There's, that's nowhere near true. I wouldn't doubt that the testing number is right, but that's nowhere near true what the actual COVID positive people are. And they don't test you until you become very sick. So right. they don't test you until you're just like really, and then you get deported. <laughs> you know, that's how they keep their numbers down. Because I just did a real quick survey of the major detention facilities that included like county jails in Santa Ana and stuff like that, city jail there that they keep people at. And, you know, like according to the ICE numbers, when they break it down on their website today, they show that Otay Mesa has 75 people in custody. Now, Otay Mesa also has some of the people there are under the Marshall custody program. So not everybody there is a migrant, but they're in the same facility. So I count them all. And they're claiming 75 detainees in Otay Mesa have tested positive. And when I look at the numbers that Kate Morrissey from San Diego Union Tribune put out, she said there's a total of 142 in Otay Mesa that are positive. So ISIS numbers for California alone are 75. They're only counting those that they're saying in Otay Mesa. When you count Adelanto, Santa Ana, Yuba, Mesa Verde, all the other ones, you come up with 194. That sounds really low to me. But on top of that, um, I still think that's low. Yeah. I mean, it's hard still for my friends to get tests in California. And I'm wondering how much of that has to do with why the numbers of tests are so low. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that of the tests that they're taking, that so many are positive. But right. How are they not testing people? I mean, it's crazy. And then you think about that they're deporting people when they get a positive result. So that means that person is traveling to their country of origin and then spreading the illness. Not even that, though, Alyssa. I mean, because they're deporting people from all over the world to Guatemala and Honduras. You don't have to be from Guatemala to get deported to Guatemala right now. Wow. Yeah, because of what Trump had worked out these agreements with Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Mostly we're seeing Guatemala right now. That they would take the people that were in the MPP program. So they don't care where you're from. They'll send you to Guatemala <laughs> just to so, get you out of the country. I know you're saying, how does this legally work? Well, none of it's legal. But nobody has the ability to do anything about it right now. It's such a fucking disaster. The thing is, too, is that what is important is that these facilities are supposed to be coordinating with local public health officials because when somebody gets sick enough that ICE can't quickly deport them and they have to take them to where? Right. They have to take them to our local hospitals. And that will right. absolutely overrun our hospitals. Absolutely. John Sedwig is with us. He is former acting director of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, during the Obama administration. Well, look, the immigration detention centers really are vulnerable to the outbreak of a contagious disease. During my time at ICE and my time at DHS, we had several outbreaks of contagious diseases. The nature of these facilities is such that it's really impossible to engage in the social distancing that we're all practicing right now. So when you look at the population of ICE uh, and the, who's in the those detention facilities and you recognize that really only a small percentage pose any public safety threat when you recognize that their immigration proceedings can continue even if they're out of custody and when you look at the thousands of ICE officers 
contract guards uh, and employees who have, who have to go to those facilities every day, who frankly are just as much at risk of catching COVID-19 because of their exposure to the facilities themselves. It seems just very commonsensical to me to say, let's go ahead and downsize the population of the detention centers dramatically. Okay, so we don't have exact numbers. Let's just say that there's no way that we're getting accurate numbers. But if you had to guess, would you say that anywhere between 75 and 85 percent are testing positive from just the numbers that we're actually seeing? Yeah, I would say that because when you look at some of the studies that have recently come out, that they say within 90 days of the introduction of COVID to one of these facilities, if within 90 days you are doing everything right, social distancing, masks, sanitizing everything, wipes, blah, 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 then you can, within 90 days, expect there to be about a 70% infection rate. But right now we know they're not. And they're still following and not doing everything that they were supposed to do. So it's just as bad as it was when the OIG report came out a little few years ago. So, so they're doing what we know they have been doing and not doing 100% good job at it. They would be at 100% within 90 days. So whenever you look at the first case reported, and that's iffy, but let's just say for argument's sake, the first case reported in Otay Mesa, 90 days from then, you should expect 100% of the population to be infected. And how about the detainees who are not currently infected with the virus? I mean, do we know what kind of protections they're receiving? Well, I mean, like I mentioned in Otay Mesa, they gave them one mask and they give them the industrial cleaning and then that's it. They don't have gloves. And the report is that some of the guards are wearing masks and some are wearing masks and gloves and some are wearing neither. A detainee inside the Otay Mesa Center says at least 26 people in his pod refused meals on Friday. They're protesting a lack of health care precautions that has led to the largest outbreak in immigration detention in the country. The detainees were given masks a week ago, but have not been given replacement ones well after the CDC says they would have lost their effectiveness. Civic put out a tweet stating that what they're doing to check the guards and anybody coming into the facility, even attorneys and so forth, are they doing a temperature check, except that the CDC just put out that the temperature check obviously isn't indicative of whether you have COVID or not. So it's not a good system checker. The best system checker is to actually do a test on people because you obviously can be asymptomatic and still expose people. But then there was another report out of Eloy, E-L-O-Y, Eloy, Arizona's detention, where the same thing, the guards tried to get people to sign away their rights of suing uh, the company. I believe that's a core civic group as well. And they got angry and they started ripping their shirts, their long sleeve shirts off and tying it around their face to produce their own mask. And they got pepper spray. Which, by the way, I don't know if you've ever been pepper sprayed, creates massive amounts of mucus. I was just going to say mucus, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's horrible. And eye watering and sneezing and coughing. So if you really want to spread a disease, throw some pepper spray into a room. There you go. It feels so big. And I want to reiterate, I'm going to ask you this question again, because I think it's really, really important to be very clear on this. 
Talk to me about who these people are. Are they criminals? Well, that's a kind of testy situation. I would say, yes, they're all criminals. And they base that off of because they criminalized 1325. So what they call a criminal is anybody who had crossed the border illegally in order to flag down a border patrol agent and say, can I apply for asylum? That legally, according to the Refugee Act of 1980, does not make you a criminal. What I like to say is that if the person in detention, just like a judge would say, is this person a flight risk, number one? Is this person a threat to society, to the community? If those two answers are no, then they do not need to be in detention. So, you know, we're back at that number of roughly around 64% of those in ICE custody, and that's all the varieties of ICE custody that we have, are not people who should be detained because they are a flight risk or because they are a danger to society. So they would get an ankle bracelet and they could be monitored, they could be bonded out, they could be released. And that's part of the law under a pandemic national emergency response is that they have the ability to release these people even without a bond. There's nothing keeping them there other than ICE saying, which they came out and said before Congress last week, we feel that if we release people, regardless of their threat to society, that that will be a pull factor and will create more people coming here to try and get into the country. And so basically they're saying we're willing to let people die within 90 days of being put into a facility just to be able to tell other people, we don't want you to come here. Has there been any kind of internal uprising from employees? Because you know, I've got to imagine that there is a risk of having so many detainees in such a small place and that that poses the risk to the employees at the detention centers. And they would want the detention centers to be emptied at this point in time. Has there been anything like that that's been going on? I think we're going to start seeing that because obviously there are a fair amount of guards getting sick. And I think once they start seeing each other die, from this. I think that you will see that. And I think there are some that are talking to press quietly and so forth. And there have been, I think, maybe one or two trying to whistleblow with what's going on. But I think that voice will get much louder because they don't get paid a lot of money and they're risking their lives and they're risking their families' lives when they go into these facilities. And I hate to say this, but I always say that people will move when it affects them personally. And that's what I truly believe with a lot of people who aren't in this line of work. But I think that we will start seeing more of that, hopefully. And, you know, I think part of the conversation we have to have is about for-profit detention centers, two of which being GeoGroup and CoreCivic, who were huge donors to Trump's inauguration committee. Mm -hmm. And now they have these huge contracts to literally detain immigrants. So what role do you think that they play in this? Oh, they play a huge role. You know, part of the problem is we go back to what we were talking about with they're supposed to follow ICE's policy on medical evaluations and access to medical care and preventive care. You know, one of the things that it states in ICE's policy manual is that 
if there is a communicable disease within the facility, it is incumbent upon facility managers to sit down with people in their custody and explain to them how they can better care for themselves. And what we have heard is that they're not telling them how they can care for themselves, that they're finding out about COVID-19 from television. And in some facilities, they have talked to them, but overwhelmingly, they haven't. So the problem when you have private companies is that the government will say you're supposed to follow these, but there's no really oversight. There's no really great inspections. And even when there is, like the one that OIG did years ago, OIG will say, these are the recommendations that you you need to make changes to make this facility up to standard, up to policy with ICE policy, DHS policy. And they just kind of go, okay, and there's no follow-up. And so there's this giant gap that happens with accountability. And the companies know that. At the same time, something that I'm concerned about is that the contracts that these private companies have with ICE and with DHS, they require them to maintain a minimum number of beds filled. So kind of like stadiums, football stadiums, if they don't sell so many seats, the city has to still pay a certain amount to make sure that the team makes enough money. So these private companies will still get a minimum amount. And I want to say it's like 34000 or something like that. I'm not 100% on that. But, so they have a minimum number that they have to meet. And right now they're below that. So they're, we're paying for more than what we're using, what the fill rate is. On top of that, I'm, I'm concerned that because crossings are down 77%, and seeing movement along the border and seeing what ICE is doing and seeing what CBP is doing and everything, I'm concerned that if SCOTUS says no on the DACA decision here pretty soon, that we might see raids and roundups. I'm not 100% obviously sure on that, but that's something that I think the community is concerned about because it's a for-profit system. They're just going to see this as, we have lost money because this bed is empty. We need to fill it. Go get us somebody. That's what the system is. Go get us somebody to fill this bed so we can pay for this bed and put money in our pockets. That's all it is. It doesn't matter who dies, how they die. It's just about filling those beds. You're an expert in this area. You're an activist, an advocate. What do we need to do to fix this right now? The very first thing that has to be done is that all of those who are not deemed a flight risk and a threat to the communities need to be given their ankle bracelets and they need to be released so that they can go to their sponsors because they all have sponsors in the United States where they have family within the United States. And that's how it needs to be handled. Then those people who are left in those facilities would better be able to separate themselves and they would have more control over this and they cannot continue to keep putting people in there who do not meet that judicial criteria of detaining someone because detaining someone should be the last resort in this country shouldn't be the first go-to and then also i think we need to start seeing what's going on in the children's shelters because these numbers are not included in that. And also the family shelters, there's just a few family shelters in like Texas. They have people in them too, and they're not being released. There's no reason to keep families in there 
that don't have criminal convictions and are not flight risk or dangerous to society. But the children also need to be released to family sponsors. There's the shelter in Chicago that half of the children in that shelter are positive for COVID right now. Mm. We don't know where in the shelter they are. We don't know if they've been taken to a hospital because the Office of Refugee Resettlement refuses to discuss anything about the children because they say it's a HIPAA violation. So they're using these privacy policy laws like HIPAA to get away with not being accountable. So there could have been children that have died in custody. There could not have been as well. We just don't know. And what do you want people listening right now who may have been very occupied with COVID-19 and not been thinking about our humanitarian crisis in our own immigration centers. What do you want people to know about the situation? I would ideally say that this is a death sentence and we should be all about the humanitarian thing. But I understand that a lot of people don't agree with my opinions on this. So I want to address this to everybody. I would say no matter what your political leanings on, no matter what your thoughts on immigration are, if you live in one of these small towns, And one of these detention centers, of which there are over 200 in the nation, is within 20 miles, 25 miles of you. And you think it's not too bad because our hospital's not full up. We're doing pretty good here because we're a rural community. Well, guess what? In one day, your hospital could be full up because these detention centers refuse to release people who are not a danger to society. And then when you get COVID or your child gets COVID, where are you going to go? What Mm. ventilator are you going to be put on when the hospital is already full of people that were allowed, knowingly allowed to become infected with this virus? Well, thank you, Jen Bud, for the update. Thanks for all you do. And thanks for being a part of the podcast. Hi, my name is Andrea Guerrero, and I am passionate about a new border vision where everybody is treated with dignity and respect. Sorry, not sorry. Andrea, thank you so, so much for joining us on the podcast today. I think it's a super important episode to remind people that there is still a humanitarian crisis going on in our immigration system. So tell us about Alliance San Diego and what you do and what populations you serve. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Elisa. Alliance San Diego is a community empowerment organization, and we are working very hard to build an inclusive democracy where everyone can achieve their full potential. And that includes immigrants, that includes border residents, that includes anyone who's ever felt that they were marginalized or otherized. We want our democracy to include you. We focus on communities of color, immigrants, marginalized communities, every other who's ever been at the fringes of our democracy, we're working hard to bring them in. Well, Trump recently shut down all immigration to the United States. President Trump has signed this executive order, which temporarily suspends immigration uh, into the United States. Let's listen to part of what the president had to say. 
By pausing immigration, we'll help put unemployed Americans first in line for jobs as America reopens. So important. Sir Rafael, uh, this uh, action by the president has been condemned by uh, immigration groups. What do you read into it? Why now? Well, it's it's really political in nature for, and we know this for two reasons. We know it because immigration right now of new people coming into the country, which is the category that the president seems to be focusing on, is at a standstill so long as consulates abroad are not taking interviews. He also issued a proclamation stating that immigrants were detrimental to the interests of the United States. <sighs> what effect do his actions and words have on immigrants? You know, Trump's words were not only offensive to immigrants, but to all of us in this country because he ignores the most enduring trait of America, which is the continuous contributions of immigrants to this country. And when you look at California in particular, nearly one out of three of us are an immigrant. And we know the contributions that we're providing to this country, and we know about the contributions of all of the other immigrants that have come before us, right? And so his words ring hollow, they are untrue, and they are part of his agenda of hate. And what can you do to, to fight that, that agenda of hate? Like, what do you feel like your position is in the fight to discredit such a hateful agenda? I think there are three things that we can do. We can work in the policy realm to change the laws, change the powers that the president has, which are far too great, and we're seeing the abuse of those powers now. We can work in our communities to organize ourselves and engage in elections and engage in the civic process. And then we can also engage in the conversation and communications and we can change the narrative. We can change the narrative so that the norm is that we treat everyone with dignity and respect. Well, let's talk a little bit about policy. What policy or policies would you change? Oh, so many. <laughs> well, list your list your top three. I have a favorite. I have a favorite <laughs> policy. I figured you did. I do. I do. It's the ultimate evil, and it's called Powers Without Warrant. And it is at 8 U.S.C. 1357, in case anyone wants to look that up. But this power shouldn't even exist. It is anathema to the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, which protects us from unreasonable searches and seizures and requires the government to have a warrant or the equivalent. This powers without warrant was granted during the communist scare of the 1950s to immigration authorities, which now includes everyone in DHS. And I liken it to the ring in the Lord of the Rings. It is the one ring to rule us all. And it's too powerful of a ring, should never have been created. We all need to form the fellowship that marches up Mount Doom and throws the ring in the fire. It will not be enough to get rid of this particular evil orange lord. We have to learn the lessons of the past and understand that as long as this ring exists, there will be someone to use it. And that is the ring or the power that 
enables DHS to do everything that it does. It allows DHS to board buses, to roam our neighborhoods, set up interior checkpoints, arrest us and stop us without any reasonable suspicion or probable cause. It allows DHS agents to conscript local police, deploy the military, do all of these things that we are now seeing happen in full force in this country. I mean, I've done a lot of interviews on immigration, and nobody has ever brought up 1357. But you're right. It is probably the cruelest. People often bring up 1325. Mm -hmm. Also cruel. And then I have another immigration lawyer friend who says that the 10-year ban should be lifted. Yes, and I think there are so many, right? The entire Immigration Nationality Act needs to be looked at. But I think this power is unique because it is a policing power. And if there is a pathway to the Third Reich, it is through this power that Mm. gives the president and his policing force, in this case DHS, extraordinary power without oversight, without limitation, without any checks and balances. We all should be very concerned about this. We are especially concerned about it in the border region where the agents exist to put this power into play. I want to turn to the coronavirus. What are you hearing from detention centers? What's happening there? The detention center situation is a top concern for us in San Diego and throughout the border region. Alliance San Diego convenes a border-wide coalition called the Southern Border Communities Coalition. And so we have our pulse on the entirety of the border where more than half of the immigration detention facilities exist in this country. And we see across all of the detention facilities egregious behavior and disrespect for the dignity and humanity of the detainees. We are gravely concerned about the quickly rising number of COVID-positive detainees. We are alarmed that medical officials inside and out of the facilities are warning that it's only a matter of days. It could be a matter of 30 to 90 days before 100% of the detainees are contracting the virus. We know that there's inadequate medical care at the detention facilities. We are hearing from both advocates and detainees about the mistreatment and the neglect that's happening at the detention center, and we are fearful for the life and the safety of every single one of the detainees. As a matter of humanity and policy, we don't believe that detention is the answer to our immigration conundrum. Detention should always be a tool of last resort. Here it's being used by the Trump administration as a tool of first resort. Mm-hmm. You know, the detention centers, the majority of them are run by private prison companies, namely GEO and Core Civic, And they have proven again and again in lawsuit after lawsuit that they are irresponsible. They are unable or unwilling to protect the welfare and well-being of the detainees. They have no business holding people during this pandemic. We have to close these centers down. It it is absolutely outrageous that everything in America has stopped. Um, Our jails are releasing prisoners, and yet in our immigration detention centers, we still have people at risk of dying. 
it is imperative that um, these centers be shut down immediately. I'm also concerned with not only the people in the detention centers, but the non-detained immigrants who are already in the United States. I would imagine that if they were sick, they probably would not be seeking medical care for fear of being deported. Is that true? There is tremendous fear, especially in the border region, where we have over 130 interior checkpoints that separate communities from healthcare facilities, including right here up the road from me, where I live in San Diego County. There is a hospital on the other side of a checkpoint where farm workers live and work. And so we know that Border Patrol in particular is increasing its operations right now throughout the border region. Now remember that we have an estimated 20,000 agents in the southern border region within 100 miles of the southern border, right? That's way more agents than we actually have police officers in the region. And Mm -hmm. these agents are increasing their hours, increasing their roving patrols, increasing their checkpoints, looking for people to detain at a moment when we should be releasing detainees and we should be clearing the way, clearing the obstacles to make sure that that every immigrant, every person in our community feels safe and secure in seeking treatment and testing. And what are you hearing from the inside of these detention centers as far as the care for those that are already positive? There is simply not enough support, not enough care for detainees who have contracted the virus. We do not know currently how many people have the virus because ICE is not being transparent. But what we do know from detainees who are reporting out is that they don't have adequate protective gear. They are not being given adequate medical attention. In fact, they are being retaliated against when they seek care or masks or even cleaning supplies, right? So for those who don't know, detainees are given a very limited amount of materials or supplies And anything else that they want, they have to buy inside the detention center. That includes toilet paper. That includes feminine products. That includes sweaters if you're cold and it is always cold. And it also includes cleaning supplies, includes hand wipes. It includes the things that people need to protect themselves from getting infected or infecting others. And of course, their living conditions are untenable. They're in close proximity to one another. And there's absolutely no way to practice social distancing inside the detention centers. Right. Yeah. I mean, of course. What this says about us as a nation is so horrifying to me. And I'm wondering, what do you think this treatment of immigrants says about us as a nation? This is our darkest hour. And we will look back on this moment with tremendous shame. It is shameful right now in real time, but I think history will not treat this moment kindly. I think we are in a low in humanity, but we also are buoyed by the tremendous compassion that people do have, and we're seeing it in the border region. Here we've you know, started, for example, a relief fund for undocumented immigrants who are not able to access the federal relief that's provided to everyone else. 
And we've seen tremendous amount of compassion, people who are saying, look, I'm in a stable situation. I'm getting the $1,200 check from the president and I'm going to turn it right around and I'm going to give it to undocumented immigrants who work alongside me, but are not able to access this because of their status. Undocumented immigrants pay taxes and use tax-supported services like roads and schools, but they likely won't receive any benefits from the stimulus package. No check, no unemployment. It's a message Everk Sanchez is trying to get out to Arizonans. He started a petition on Change.org, hoping to inform others about the importance of the undocumented workforce and their contributions to the economy. It's a message he hopes lawmakers will listen to. They're scared. Uh, They don't know what to do. Most of them also have two or, more, or three jobs. So now they have to stay home and they need to, to take care of the, of the kids and those kids that are citizens. So you work in community development. What can individuals and organizations in San Diego and you know around the nation do to change this horrible situation that immigrants are facing in our detention centers? There's so much good organizing work going on across the country. And I would say, regardless of where you are, you can connect with the Southern Border Communities Coalition at southernborder.org to understand particularly what's happening in the Southern Border region where much of the abuse and the neglect and the concern is. You can also connect with Detention Watch Network, which is supporting local organizations that are specifically working on detention issues. What Alliance San Diego, as the host of Southern Border Coalitions, Communities Coalition, and Detention Watch Network, and the many local and national organizations who are engaging on this issue, what we all share is a belief that we can create something new. We can reach for a new vision, in our case, a new border vision, where everyone is treated with dignity and respect. That Mm -hmm. should be our North Star. That's what we should all reach for. And that's what we can do when we organize and work together. And that's what we are doing through our coalition, the Southern Border Communities Coalition. That's what Detention Watch Network is doing. And that's what countless of other local and national groups are doing around the country. And how can we support your work? I would direct people who are interested in supporting the undocumented immigrants to go to immigrantsandiego.org, where we are working in coalition with our sister organizations here to support immigrants through all kinds of assistance, whether that's releasing them on bond, getting them cash assistance to get them through the pandemic or engaging in policy advocacy at the local, state, and national level to support them. Well, Andrea, thank you for all you do, and thank you for being a part of the podcast. Just being a DACA recipient, I know I can be next. Her mom brought her here illegally from Mexico when she was one. She's allowed to work under the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA. There are 700,000 people in the United States brought here as children, also called DREAMers, allowed to stay in the U.S. under DACA. I don't feel any different than anybody here in the U.S. I feel just like everybody else. My life runs the same way. I get up to go to work. I pay all my bills. I pay rent. I... They take from my taxes, from my paycheck. 
I mean, I, I don't feel any different other than what makes me different is that work permit and a social security card. The future of the Obama-era program was already on shaky ground. The Supreme Court will decide if the program will continue before it expires in June. And now the immigration debate is part of the coronavirus conversation after President Trump tweeted, in light of the attack from the invisible enemy, as well as the need to protect the jobs of our great American citizens, I will be signing an executive order to temporarily suspend immigration into the United States. He later clarified the 60-day pause would have exemptions like farm workers. And if they want us out, they're, they're going to regret it later. How we treat immigrants says exactly who we are as a nation. I want us to be better. So did Emma Lazarus when she wrote The New Colossus. This poem sits at our nation's doorstep at the Statue of Liberty who must be weeping to see who we have become. The New Colossus. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your story pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.